Coming up this hour, we're going to attack some of the news of the day and then hear from Scott Sauls and his new blog post, When a Father Wound Defines You. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. Oh, three more days that I can say that. I'm just going to keep saying it. Alongside Ian Simpkins, <laughs> my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Wednesday. We're like a day or two away from just playing old Michael W. Smith songs, Friends Are Friends Forever, all sorts of stuff. We're going to go every sappy thing we can go as Ian is uh, at the end of this week. We'll be done. We'll no longer be here on The Common Good as he heads off to Tennessee. But uh yeah, I'm I'm going to I'm going to get every sappy moment out of this uh that we can get. So anyway, how's the packing going today? How is the uh real estate? How is everything? I can't imagine all that you're going through right now just getting ready. So how is it all going for you? Let me tell you, trying to do it after a knee surgery is a smart move. Real real proud of that decision on my end. I don't know what I was we had almost a year of working from home of just me at a laptop where I could have gotten this taken care of. But oh, no, I had to wait till we're moving boxes up and down stairs and we get 17 feet of snow. So I'm, you know, shoveling and snow blowing. We have my doctor. We had a, a checkup and he's like, yeah, it's not healing well. <laughs> he's like, are you taking it easy? And I kind of just gave him a look. He's like, you're not taking it easy, are you? So, we, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> everything else. And we're trying to, you know, pack and purge and do all that with uh, a couple of little ones running around screaming and all that. But, you know, Grandma Marion's helped out a bunch watching the kids and we're we're chipping away one day at a time, man. It's weird. We, you know, it's also emotional. So, like, I, I'll find yeah. a, a card or a note here or an old photo and you just sit and weep for a moment and then you got to get get right back to it. So, yeah, it's definitely been it's been a roller coaster for sure. Yeah. As I said on yesterday's show, I've never done a big move like my longest move post college was moving from Wheaton to Downers Grove <laughs> so not right, exactly right. cross country you know and uh more more across DuPage County and uh so I've never done that I I would imagine for you uh there's a lot of like sad emotions and excited anticipating emotions and also just needing to get stuff done. Like it's got to really be just a real strange stew. And I know there's people out there going, I've done this multiple times. I just never have. So I'm kind of living vicariously through you. Do you just feel like a wave of emotions and uh, overwhelmed yes. and everything all at once right now? Yeah. And it's, it's not only just the, you know, finding a photo or a car. It's, it's sometimes it's like an old record or uh, an old, you know, a lot of that stuff yeah. is kicked up. And then, you know, and God bless them. Someone sends me a random text or an email or something. Just, hey, we're praying for you. Hey, you know, we've had a bunch of people say, hey, can we, can we bring you a meal? Just like the sweetest, kindest. You know, I think I told you that the bridge, the church that we're, uh, we're moving to Tennessee for, they sent us like a care package with Nashville shirts for each of us and games for the kids That's and cool. gift cards to go get some food. Like, hey, we just want to bless you guys. Want to let you know that we're, we're thinking about you and praying for you. Like that's, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been blown away by that. But it, it certainly, yeah, it's, it's. I'm trying to think of a better analogy than roller coaster because there's some really big emotional things. Like you said, I've been here since 2003, so this is uh, this would be my first biggest. Well, not I mean, I was Elgin and then Bartlett and now Naperville, but like you said, that's about Wheaton to Downers Grove. Type. Right. So I've never having done this before, that's a lot to t kind of take in and process. Plus, there's still a pandemic. Plus, there's all the logistical things that kind of I wake up in a cold sweat minimum twice a night right now just like oh yeah that other thing and i gotta call that guy or i need to send that email or, you know, 
you know, yes. that's that's sort of occupying most of my 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. block. Just buying up all the portillos you can and putting it in a freezer or six. You could take it down with you. And uh, yeah, that kind and, of uh, stuff. Deep, right. dish, deep dish pizza and all sorts of stuff. I, I just can't imagine, man. And I know. That it's got to feel good, though, to be going to a church that is already trying to care for you, even though you haven't gotten there yet. Like that's yeah. I, I got to think that that is a uh, like, OK, uh, we're we're in good hands that they're sending you stuff and trying to bless you and pray for you even before you get there. Because most churches are probably like, all right, once you get here, uh, we'll help you out, you know, but to have them do that, I'm sure that that's a that's got to be a pretty good feeling for you. Right. Yeah, it's awesome. And, and you know, community, when we came here five years ago, yeah. did a lot of the same thing. So we we feel really, really grateful and and blessed that yeah amidst all the stress and uncertainty there certainly are a bunch of people praying for us and offering to help and you know a number of people just going way above and beyond in some super practical ways and i've been i've been super grateful for that especially when we you know weren't able to have any kind of like normal going away thing we couldn't like see and hug people all that kind of stuff you know you can lament some of that not happening and uh yeah, I've been really, really. I'll get emotional now talking about it. I've, it's been, it's been really, really, really wild for sure. Yeah. So uh, for anyone who's missed it, if you've normally listened to the show but you haven't been listening this week, Ian will be doing today's show Thursday, Friday, uh, and then we are done, or he is done. I'm going to remain with the show, and what what is next for the show is coming. Once we have that figured out, we'll let you know. But the good news is the common good will be continuing from four to six every day. Uh, the sad news is without Ian, although Ian, do you do, you do know that your last day is Friday, but then we'll have a best of on Monday before president's day. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you'll still be on the air. <laughs> still. Uh, yeah. You can't get rid of me that easy. Apparently. <laughs> no. So we have this emotional farewell. And then on Monday, here's Ian. <laughs> so <laughs> and it'll be a best of, so we won't be talking about it at all. Like is Ian ignoring the move entirely? <laughs> That's going to, that, that might feel, that feels strange. Everyone's like, this is strange. I thought we just said goodbye. So uh, <laughs> in the in the ultimate right turn here, I, uh, one thing we haven't done recently, because we do want to just have some normal shows here, you know, before you go. One thing we've usually done, but haven't done in a while this week, at least this week, is just to go over some news. And so I've got three newsy stories here, and I'm going to let you choose one that uh, that uh, that you're like, you know what, I'd love to just kind of riff on that one. A $15 minimum wage that has been a big part of what Joe Biden wants to do. A $15 minimum wage would spur job losses, but lessen poverty, according to a congressional report, which is just a crazy kind of a, a, a both and there. Two, we got President Trump's impeachment trial that is now underway. And three, Jeff Bezos steps down as the Amazon CEO. We were going to do all three of those, but now we're, we're down to just a couple minutes. I'm going to let you. Choose which one you want to talk about. Which one would you like to just dive into there? Let's just talk about Portillo's some more. I don't. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about any of these. Um, let's see what will get me in the least amount of trouble in my final week. I. I mean, the Bezos one is is pretty wild, actually. I don't know if you've uh, followed this story at all, or if you. I, I have. Okay, I want to ask you this question. This is kind of unrelated. Let's see if I can get Brian Fromm in trouble during my final week. Great, I'd like I'd like to continue after this. So yes, <laughs> yeah, you, well, this won't be that. This won't be that bad. Um, should billionaires exist? Oh, should <laughs> billionaires exist? So I, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I think they. It is okay for them to exist, but. Uh, 
but I would like to think that billionaires would use their money in order to uh, to help and grow not just their own their own wealth, but those struggling around them, which often does not happen. So I don't want to get into a system where I'm like, okay, you can only make that much and never more, right? Like that's not really the system of government that we have. I do struggle to be honest, if we're laying all the cards on the table, I do struggle with the concept of billionaires when you see people struggling all around. Uh, but I don't know how you stop it from existing. So that's my way of dancing around it. I would love you to get yourself fired. How do you, How would you answer that question? Well, I just I find that answer so interesting that because you're like, well, I don't know how do you stop it. So I guess just let it keep happening. To, for some context, you could make $25,000 a day for the next 100 years and you still wouldn't have a billion dollars just to put that into context. That's how much a (laughs) billion with a B dollars is. So I think it's, it's probably uh, some might not say this is fair, but I, I think, mm, I think the only path to billionaire status likely involves some level of exploitation. Can I say that? Is that uh, is that too scandalous of a <laughs> people? People might be shaking their fists at me. I just, um, yeah, I maybe I kind of showed my cards. I don't. Uh, I don't think it's great. I would agree with that, and it'll be an interesting conversation. Like, there's one thing to say that it's not great and it's exploitative. It's other thing. How do you stop? It's the wrong word, but how do you prevent billionaires? Yeah, what a good, man. That's not where I thought we were going, but that is a great question. <laughs> Billionaire, and you start to do the math on Jeff Bezos's money, or Mark Zuckerberg, or Elon Musk, and you start to realize uh, how long, it, how much money they have compared to other people. It is nuts, just yeah. craziness. And so, uh, when you add that to the minimum wage conversation and other things, it is an interesting conversation to have. So, coming up next, uh, Christianity Today. Uh, Sandra McCracken writes this. Don't pack away the dinnerware during COVID-19. We're going to talk about hospitality in the midst of a pandemic next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Grateful to have you with us on this Wednesday. Well, over at Christianity Today, Sandra McCracken, uh, back in December, in the midst of the pandemic that we are still a part of, uh, she wrote this, don't pack away the dinnerware during COVID-19. She said, even in our small circles, when we practice hospitality, we foreshadow God's coming kingdom. So an important conversation about what does hospitality look like? What's our posture towards other people look like in the midst of a global pandemic? Uh, and this idea about meals and hospitality, I think, is a, is an evergreen one and a fascinating one. So, Ian, why don't you jump us into this article from Christianity Today? I would love to. It begins this way. The late Miranda Harris was best known for the International Conservation Organization she and her husband founded 35 years ago called A Roca, which is The Rock in Portuguese. She and her husband, Peter, traveled the world to share their love of God and of creation. But Miranda was also known for the beautiful letters she sent from all those places around the world. I was fortunate enough to have received many of them. They arrived in my Tennessee mailbox postmarked from France, Malaysia, and South Africa. Wow. Her letters came alive with words from the Psalms, with family updates and encouragements written in lovely script all the way to the edges of the page. She wrote the way she lived as an overflow. That's 
wonderful. I just love the way that's yeah. written. Miranda's faithful habit of letter writing was part of her gift for bringing others into her life. So was the Harris's family table. In the early days of the couple's ministry, Miranda famously spent her first earnings on a large dining room table. The Aroca House uh, on the coast of Portugal, that sounds amazing, was yes, a study center that in those first years uh, also served as their family home. They welcomed travelers and scientists, binocular-toting bird observers, note-takers, and researchers. Miranda's extravagant purchase of a dining room table made hospitality a priority. Community orbited around this table and through conversations, feasting, and regular time spent face-to-face over meals. I've thought of this this image often this year as our family tables have been reduced in size during pandemic life. Whether you live alone, with a spouse, with friends, or in other family configurations, the compression of our social rhythms has likely left you feeling isolated. It would be easier to choose to eat in front of a screen, apart from others, or hidden headphones. While we all need time apart, especially in close quarters, maintaining the ceremonial rhythms of a regular family meal can bond us together even when we feel the inevitable strain of intimacy. For our loved ones who are close in heart but not in proximity, regular phone calls or cheerful notes can similarly bring tangible comfort and remind them that they are loved. And I'll just end with this paragraph here. Holy habits are often quiet habits. Meeting together for a meal at the same time with the same people is a reminder that we belong. This kind of nourishment is more substantial than just the vegetables on the plate. Who we are begins here. In the long view, relationships are sustained by habits of hospitality, no matter the scale. So I'll stop. I think that's a beautiful premise. I imagine for a lot of people, even more, I don't know, quote unquote, hospitality minded people. Mm -hmm. My guess is that plenty of people have. Maybe March, April, May really like lamented, gosh, this is like such a part of our rhythm and we're not able to do it right now. I I wonder how many people who are even perhaps, you know, on the on the more frequent end of hospitable have have almost just downgraded hospitality off the top 10 list. Like uh, are people thinking about it even like oh, I don't even have the bandwidth to think about creating a space around a table because it feels like such a, a distant memory for so many I, I would be really curious to know how, how those people are handling it. But I don't, I don't know your family rhythms, Brian. Like, is this something that yeah. you guys have felt some of this ache in the, in the Fromm household? It's very interesting when she talks here about the, the family dinner, the family meal. Because when the pandemic first started, it was like, we're going to have every one of the great blessings was like, we're going to have every meal that we can around the table. Uh, and then I, as the pandemic is just worn on, I wonder if other families feel that way. We've just kind of moved away from that a little bit. Like, oh, let's watch something. Let's do this. And mm. just the other day, we were like, no, we're going to eat at the table. And we laughed and laughed and laughed and mm. sat there forever. And it was a blast. And it was like, oh, yeah, we still need to prioritize. There's something special about the dinner table, right? There's something yes. special when you can do it about sitting around the family table. And I, I, I'd realized like, okay, we'd fallen away from that a little bit because we're home every meal it feels like whereas before we weren't Mm -hmm. uh, and now it feels like we are and so yeah it is hard though for people uh who are constantly opening their home wanting to have other people in uh it it is very uh it's been very difficult and so uh, i would say when it comes to the family dinner it's it's a more of a prioritization uh but but what do you think people can do who are like you know what i like this woman i bought a table i i my goal was just to have people around the table all the time what are other ways they can exercise those gifts of hospitality if you will when when that maybe has been taken away from them yeah i mean some of this has to do with our particular life stage right now and it's not nearly the same but 
Yeah. We've done some Zoom dinners, you know, some conversation with the laptop on a table. That's obviously not not nearly the same. People have dropped off meals for us in the midst of packing and moving. That that Ooh. feels like a really it's not just like the act of them delivering it, which is you know, especially in this cold, that's a beautiful act to like show up at our house. But then as we eat it though, I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Anne is so good at this or may just crushed the, you know, like, and then I, you reminded us, shoot them a quick text or whatever. Like, gosh, thank you again. Like there's a, they're not there with you physically, but there certainly is a a hospitality experience there that I think is, is pretty profound. And I think, I think we can do that for other people. I think even, you know, with my little family being intentional about um, eating together at the table uh, making space for that. My boys are, are pretty young to be asking them, you know, questions about their day and whatnot. But mm-hmm. like I, 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 I wrote something years ago. I was doing a, a study on the word hospitality and I, I, I can't believe I didn't realize this, but like the, the word hospitality and hospital come from the same root. Uh, and that makes sense. I'm yeah. thinking, man, a, a hospital is where someone goes to like find healing. Gosh, it would be beautiful if we saw hospitality the same way. It's not just about, oh, I provided a meal or room and board or, you know, in a lot of like church, like local church context, the hospitality ministry like handles the snacks. It's so much more than that. It's like a feeling of like home and belonging that brings healing. And I think if we saw hospitality that way, I would argue the way that Jesus did is way more radical than just simply, you know, we'll have something available for you. It was like, the welcoming of the other that's like so central to the heart of the gospel in the first place. I think that would change the way that we prioritize hospitality, even, even in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. She goes on to write Sandra McCracken. You might know her singer songwriter who Ian, she lives in Nashville. Mm -hmm. See if she'll practice some hospitality when you get down there. (laughs) She says, well, for a time we may be apart from loved ones and our place settings may be few. The habit of meeting together with the few people we do have near us will shape our hearts toward the time when we can again gather everyone around our big table. How rich then that God himself prepares a table for us. At God's own table, he is the nourishment, the celebration, and the host. Throughout history, the church has often been scattered, and the Lord's Supper is a demonstration of God's hospitality to us as we remember Jesus' death and resurrection until he comes. In this way, Miranda, who she was describing before, uh, her lavish table purchase had an even deeper meaning. One day, we will again gather at a table together for a homecoming feast. In that light, setting out plates and forks can become a liturgy of fellowship. Just by showing up, we receive God's provision as we pass the green beans and potatoes. Hmm. When we gather, God's spirit infuses hope into the rhythms of our lives. So such a beautifully written uh, post here by at Christian Today by Sandra McCracken. It's up at our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. We'd love to know what you think. At the very least, give it a read. Uh, it is quite an encouragement. Well, coming up next, friend of the show. Uh, Scott Sauls uh, wrote a blog post entitled this, When a Father Wound Defines You. That's coming up next from Scott Sauls here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this hump day, on this Wednesday afternoon Hope that you are doing well. Well, Scott Sauls, who we affectionately call a friend of the show, he's been on the show a few times. But if you've listened to the show at all in the past two years, you know that uh, for as, as many times as he's been on, 
uh, exponentially more have we read his articles, read his blog posts, referenced his tweets, somebody that we both respect. And man, now that we all know you're moving to Nashville, uh, the Nashville area, it feels like everybody we talk about is from the Nashville area now. Uh, But that's where Scott Sauls is. He is a pastor uh, in Nashville, uh, down by where Ian will be will be moving here soon. Uh, but Ian, he wrote what I think is an important blog post that I would love for you to help us out with, have you read for us. It was uh, written at the end of January. He wrote, when a father wound defines you, this feels like it's going to be pretty deep and and pretty important. When a father wound defines you, why don't you let us know what Scott Sauls had to say here? I mean, is it safe to? Am I going to get emotional? It's the picture alone of this like stuffed oh, teddy. It looks like it could be a lot. On the on the concrete. I don't know that I'm in the right emotional state for this. All right, let me let me go for it anyway. <clears throat> Since I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I am comforted deeply so by the fact that God put so many misfits and insecure people in the Bible and then accomplished beautiful things through their lives. The ancient Jewish patriarch Jacob is one of these people. Jacob was haunted by insecurity and self-doubt, which makes perfect sense. As the second-born son of Isaac from early childhood, Jacob lived with the pain of knowing that he was his father's second favorite son. Isaac loved his first son and Jacob's twin brother Esau the best. Years of doting on and favoring Esau, his macho hunter-gatherer son, uh, wounded Jacob, a mama's boy, in comparison to his brother very deeply. Another significant detail about Jacob's childhood is that his father named him Jacob, a name that in Hebrew means liar or some might say deceiver. Can you imagine growing up with a name like this? Every time someone says your name, it reminds you that ever since your birth, your father pronounced a curse over you instead of a blessing and that from your earliest days, he has looked upon you with contempt instead of favor. Your own father has decided that as far as he was concerned, you are a nobody instead of a somebody. Jacob resorted to desperate measures in an attempt to reverse the negative verdict spoken over him by Isaac. When he and his brother Esau were adult men and Isaac had lost his eyesight and was dying, Jacob went into his father posing as Esau, saying, Father, it's me, Esau. Give me my blessing. Then believing that the son of his scorn was instead son of his love, Isaac spoke the blessing, unaware and under false pretense over Jacob instead of Esau. I once heard Tim Keller say that Jacob's deceit was the first recorded case of identity theft. But what was Jacob's motivation? Why, under false pretense, and knowing that it would not be long before both Isaac and Esau would find him out, did Jacob deceive anyway? Ten out of ten therapists would say that it was because Jacob, like every other child in the world, craved a paternal blessing. More than anything, he longed to hear words of affirmation spoken over him by his father. And if the blessing can only be gained under false pretenses, a child will resort to any measure to satisfy this primal craving. Simply put, Jacob wanted more than anything to hear from his father's lips. I see you. You matter. I love you. I like you. You matter to me. See, I knew this was going to get me choked up already. This is this is the Cats in the cradle of the blogosphere, and there's no way I'm making it through the rest of this. Uh, what do you What do you think so far of, of what he's not only set up, but what he's sort of observed about that story? First of all, it's the cats in the cradle of the blogosphere is one of the greatest lines you've ever uttered. <laughs> oh wow, wow, thanks. Well, trying to trying to that end was, the week strong. <laughs> that was fabulous. The cats in the cradle of the blogosphere. Scott Sauls is such a fabulous writer, and I've never really considered Jacob and Esau in that way. It's always like, well, he mm. wants the blessing. He wants, but no, he. This idea of uh, just picture if it was a given that your dad preferred your brother to you, 
and it was just like like this is like stated as fact in the story and uh that he had named you liar and deceiver and that uh that you were always kind of chasing yeah man this I think Saul's is right that in the end he wanted to have what his brother had, not even just in the blessing, but in his father's love and approval. And then to move it to our side of things and just to go, this is what every kid wants. This is what every, not only kid, but every adult wants like to have that paternal blessing of, of your dad saying, I love you. I like you. I respect you. Uh, I'm, I'm for you. Uh, And Saul's goes on to talk about his own kids uh, he said, what is it in the heart of a child that makes her or him long to be watched and to be seen, even while doing something so mundane, something so ins- unspectacular as reading a book to herself quietly? That's the story he just told. It's the same thing that resides in the heart of a grown up. In the heart of every adult and child resides the longing to be watched and then to be praised, to be known and then to be loved, to be seen and exposed and then to not be rejected. It's a longing to be approved and favored. It's a longing to be somebody in the eyes of a greater somebody. It's a longing to be secure. He goes on to say, comedian Ellen DeGeneres talks about the fictitious, quote, approval patch that she wears under her sleeve every day. Uh, And he said, but for Ellen, Jacob and the rest of us, the craving never stops. We are made in the image of God. The purpose of whose existence is to be glorified and adored and given honor and praise. Why then would we ever think it odd to desire praise ourselves being made in his image? And this is just such a huge deal, man. It's this idea that we want uh, we want to be accepted and we want to be um, seen and affirmed, not just by our earthly dads or by other people in our lives, but by our heavenly father. Uh, this idea of the approval patch, it, it's uh, I read that and, and that idea I've talked to you before, how I feel like I'm a people pleaser. I think that's it. It's this idea of getting the approval of others, hearing others say good job. And then, and I think we do that with our heavenly father as well. Well, and there's some layers to this because uh, I want to read this Groucho Marx illustration that he gives. And part of the reason I want to read it is because. My father loves Groucho Marx. So there's some layers to that, right? Talking about uh, approval of our father and whatnot. So let me share that and then I'll share with you something I read this morning. He says, there's a Groucho Marx skit that I love because I relate to it so much. In the skit, Groucho is having a conversation with a friend in which he goes on and on and on and on and on about himself. In the course of going on and on about himself, he slips into a brief moment of self-awareness and apologizes to his friend for talking so much about himself. He politely says to his friend, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? (laughs) (laughs) So good. And so in my uh, in my devotions this morning, actually, I was I was reading from uh, Matthew and the guy that was offering kind of some observations in this devotional book that I'm reading. It's the uh, the moment where where God speaks to Jesus and says, this is my, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And what is Mm -hmm. so beautiful about that particular interaction is as far as we can tell, Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet. He's not preached any sermons yet. It's this, this moment of the father speaking approval and blessing over the son and, and the guy that wrote it challenged all of us to, you know, as we're reading like, Hey, just take a moment today and imagine God just speaking approval and affection and love and blessing over you well before you've done anything praiseworthy well before you've built your resume you know to where you think it needs to be well before you've accomplished any of those things 
God speaks favor and affection and approval over you. And I think what a, what a powerful image that he, you know, he literally said, what, just imagine you're walking into the waters with Jesus there and you experience that. And I think that is something, regardless of your Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs or your Strengths Finders, mm-hmm. I think that is something that we, we probably all need to hear that God loves you, not some future version of you. The God's, yeah. God's, affection for you is not based on your performance for him. And that's, I, that's really, really good news. And I think, yeah, regardless of where you're at in your, your life stage journey or whatever, that's, that's a good thing to grapple with. You, your future neighbor here, Scott Sauls, he ends with the exact same verse you just did. Oh, does you are he? my beloved son and with you, I'm well pleased. Matthew three seventeen. And Saul says approval patch, no longer necessary. Ceaseless striving for approval, no longer required. No more fear of mediocrity or of your longing or of your legacy being forgotten. Because now, Jacob, I'm giving you a new name. From now on, you will be named Israel, which means he wrestles with God. And he goes on to talk about that wrestling. Uh, but I love that. he Saul uses the same verse you just referenced <laughs> there in Matthew 3. That's and wild. then just that line, approval patch, no longer necessary. So I, we were only able to scratch the surface of this. I would really encourage you to go read uh, from Scott Sauls here, when a father wound defines you, because it's just a powerful word uh, there from Scott Sauls. Well, coming up next, uh, another friend of the show, Ed Stetzer writes, evangelical Christians must take action to love thy neighbor. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. We are glad that you are spending some time with us today on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Ed Stetzer's blog called The Exchange at uh, Christianity Today, uh, this written by Heather Rice Minus. Uh, she wrote, evangelical Christians must take action to love thy neighbor. Extending grace can be a powerful wi- a public witness for evangelicals today. You've done a lot of readings. Let me get us into this one. Uh, It says, the events of this past summer were a wake-up call for Christians, including evangelicals, from acknowledging centuries-old endemic racial inequity from the pulpit, calls to prayer, protest, and action. Many are trying to find ways to step from the sidelines to the playing field in the pursuit of justice. Indeed, our faith calls us to action and accountability as God's people. The Old and New Testaments of the Bible express a preoccupation with justice. For example, biblical teaching found in Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, correct correct oppression. And Hebrews, remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you uh, yourselves were suffering, are just two examples of the ancient Judeo-Christian witness to a God with unwavering commitment to justice. Charles Colson, founder of Prison Fellowship, prioritized the Hebrews mandate to come alongside those affected by crime and incarcerated. We believe God, God created humanity in God's own image and no life is beyond God's redemptive touch. Our faith drives us to work to bring the restorative justice envisioned and empowered by God and his word into the broken lives, relationships and communities we serve. So, uh, you know, pause there. That's a powerful introduction reminding us that we as Christians are not just supposed to uh, feel sorry for people who are less fortunate or in prison or whatever else, uh, but that we are to come alongside, that we are to stand up for justice, that we are to stand in the gap. Uh, that's an important step, wouldn't you say? And and one that 
uh, is difficult, but the church really uh, needs to increasingly embrace. I would probably take it even a step further. I think right now, I think it's easy to quote unquote, take a stand for justice because I think for a lot of people, you know, it's easy to feel like an activist by tweeting a couple of things Mm -hmm. and then calling it good, which, you know, awareness is a big part of it. Like speaking up, that has to be a part of it. It's, one thing to have a heart for justice, it's something else entirely to have like hands and feet for it. You know what I mean? Like it's one thing to, well, I, oh, I feel it. I feel for this community or this particular issue or this particular person or people group. I, it, it's, I think it's good and right for it to start there. I think we should feel it. I think part of my, part of my struggle is that sometimes it's, it starts and stops with feeling. We feel it really deeply and passionately and we don't do, anything about it. And you might be saying my, my time is, is really tight and I totally get that. Or finances are, are really tight right now. Finances have been incredibly difficult for all of us. Like I, I completely understand that, but I think for people of the way for followers of Jesus, it's, it's not an elective course. It's not something that we can like, ah, I'll let the, the justice minded people, the compassion minded people, the whatever on the Enneagram, the, what, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll let them, kind of deal with it. I think it's a lot of it stems too from the way that we talk about sin, to be honest, maybe you didn't expect this turn. I think, mm-hmm. I think when we talk about Jesus came to free us from sin, he's talking about individual interpersonal and institutional like that. When we, when we limited just to one, like, ah, it's just about me and buddy Jesus. And so I can go to heaven. I think we, I think that's part of it. I think that's one third of it though, at the, at the, at the most, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. there's so many other aspects that, as as Jesus followers, we're we're not only just like invited into, we're called, we're challenged, we're charged to step into and to put like our real selves, our real you know blood, sweat, and tears into by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think for us to allow ourselves to opt out is um, yeah, it's probably not great. So let me ask you this, because yeah, it's your last week. Let's let's ask you the hard stuff. Why is the idea in your in your we've talked a bunch about this, but the concept of justice, the concept of systems, the concept of social justice, uh, such a hot button issue in the evangelical world? Like those aren't necessarily agreed upon, right? Like it causes a lot of debate and and um, and heated discussions. What are your thoughts as to why that might be? I think, I mean, we've done articles on this just in the last week or two. Some see it somehow as a distraction because of their particular worldview or framework about what uh, salvation looks like, what redemption looks like, what maybe even shalom, what does it look like to restore shalom? To me, justice that isn't also social is not really justice. You know, when we talk about this ethereal kind of nebulous, like, ah, justice in like a book of revelation sense where everything will be made right is about as far as I'm going to go. I mean, the very center of the gospel message is that while we were still sinners, while we were still distant, far, you know, whatever language you want to use, like Christ comes after us, restores that like there's restorative language all throughout the teachings and life and ministry, the incarnation itself. It's Jesus stepping down from his privilege mm-hmm not to be served, but to serve, to, to be obedient all the way to a cross. So like, why do we think though, if we're going to, if that's the guy we're following that I then would get to hold on to all of my comfort and prestige and privilege that like that was for him to do. 
even though I know that he said like 45 times, now go and do likewise. And I've modeled <laughs> this for you. I've washed your feet. Now you must wash each other's. This is how the world will know by how you not think about one another, but I love one another. It's not mm. it's just this intellectual ascent and if make make sure you get all your doctrine right. And I, I care about doctrine. I'm please hear that. I love theology. I've committed my life to it, but he doesn't simply just say, yeah, think good things toward each other, you know, and best of luck. He's like, no, live, live this out. And we should be about, you know, standing up for standing with working towards restorative justice, social justice for the marginalized, the exploited, the vulnerable. It's, it's hard to read anything in scripture and to not find that somewhere. And I think, uh, I think it's important that we remind each other of that fact. Yeah. And so this article in particular is written by, uh, she is part of prison fellowship and what Chuck Colson started years ago. And I, I want to close with, uh, what she wrote here in our focus on the individual evangelical Christians, including me, she writes, sometimes lose sight of the gospel's community implications. Not only do souls require redemption, but so do societal systems and structures. And so she's going to talk particularly about prison. She said, yes, uh, we should, quote, visit the prisoner. But we must also ask ourselves whether or not it is just that they're in there in the first place or for so long. Further, in the U.S., some 44,000 legal barriers to housing, employment and other opportunities prevent people with a criminal record from flourishing. While we share with incarcerated men and women that all things are possible through Christ, we cannot be complacent about a system that upon their release holds them back. And she's going to continue to unpack this. This is somebody who's got boots on the ground, uh, prison fellowship, kind of uh, trying to bring about change and bring about restoration and thinking about these things. And so I would encourage you to go look at that as well. Uh, what does it look like, she says, about e- e- uh, individual evangelical Christians can't lose sight of the gospel's community implications? That's a That's a strong word and one that I agree with, but I'd love to know what you think. You can find that on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, uh, Bill Maher on HBO said something that uh, you may have trouble with. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, HBO host Bill Maher said something that's going to get you riled up. And then we're joined by Tara Beth Leach. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are really glad to have you joining us today. And uh, as we keep the steady march towards the uh, end of the week, and uh, as we've been talking about all week, Ian's last week here on The Common Good, and uh, yeah, that that end line, my friend, is going to come whether I want it to or not, isn't it? Like you're you're counting them down, but right now I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm right there with you in the uh, no sentiment. I, yeah, I don't. It's a very surreal. It's a very odd thing to to leave two jobs at the same time too, and not just yes. like jobs. Like jobs, are, you know, where you've built friendships and community and mm-hmm. all of that. I, I'm not I'm not good with that in general. Some people are just, you know, I have friends that grew up like they were military kids or whatever. Like, oh, yeah, every two years I'm like ready to move. I'm like, oh, boy, I am. Oh, gosh, no, I'm not wired that way at all. Not just logistically speaking, like emotionally speaking. So I'm doing my best to keep powering through because there's still like adult things that need to happen in our house. Right. I, I, t- I tweeted something yesterday. I was like, Ian's plan of attack and packing is like march into a room of determination, open a box, 
find old cards and notes, every card and note <laughs> I've ever received. Sit sobbing for the next six hours. Try again tomorrow. You know, like it's it's uh, I saw not that great. Tweet. I saw that tweet and I totally like I said uh, in yesterday and earlier today that I've never made as big a move as you are making. But uh, I totally get that sentiment where you're like, all right, I'm going to get all this stuff done. Uh, it actually just happened the other day. My wife had a box of pictures out from kind of around when we got married. She's kind of scanning them so that we have them on our computers and such. And uh, I just, I was like, all right, I got to get this done. And then like an hour later, I'm like, nope, I'm still just looking at pictures right mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can imagine when it's like goodbyes and farewells and this and that, how much more that must be. So uh, anyway, we're, we're going to kind of do a mixture over the rest of the week of uh, kind of doing normal news shows and, and stuff we normally talk about mixed with kind of Ian's reflections and saying goodbye to Ian. So uh, bear with us and hopefully you find it enjoyable. And if you want to say goodbye to Ian, you can do so on our Facebook page as well, the Common Good Radio Show. Well, uh, Bill Maher is somebody uh, who has uh, riled up, I will say, Christians many times in the past. He's an HBO host, comedian, uh, and the headline, a Christian headline says this, HBO host Bill Maher compares Christians to QAnon conspiracy, uh, conspiracists, says Capitol Riot was close. Uh, clo- uh, I can't speak today. Quote, <laughs> a faith-based initiative. Let me just read some of this. It says, on okay. Friday, Bill Maher criticized Christians for the U.S. Capitol Riot attack while likening their faith to those who hold QAnon conspiracies. Maher, an atheist, contended that the January attack on the nation's capital was ultimately, quote, a faith-based initiative in light of Christians who support Trump. As long as we're going to, uh, as long as we're going to go to the trouble of another impeachment trial, he said, we might as well be honest about what it's really about. The events of January 6th were a faith-based initiative. He went on to explain that Trumpism is a Christian nationalist movement that believes Trump was literally sent from heaven to save them. Uh, as he played a clip of Senator Tommy Tuberville. There's a lot of talk now, he says, in liberal corners about how Republicans should tell their base who still believe the election was rigged, that they need to grow up and move on and stop asking the rest of us to respect their mass delusion. And of course, it is a mass delusion. But the inconvenient truth here is that if you accord religious faith the kind of exalted respect we do here in America, you've already lost the argument that mass delusion is bad. Let me just give you a little bit more of what he had to say. He took a shot at the book of Revelation because of its symbolism, which he compared to QAnon. He said, it's fun to laugh at QAnon with the baby eating lizard people in the pedophile pizza parlors. But have you ever read the book of Revelation? That's the Bible. That's your holy book, Christians. Magical religious thinking is a virus and QAnon is just its current uh, current mutation. That's why mega churches play QAnon videos. It's the same basic plot. Q is a prophet. Trump is the Messiah. There's an apocalyptic event looming, the storm. There's a titanic struggle of good versus evil. And if you want to win, just keep those checks coming. There is a lot there. And so I'm going to stop right there. Uh, Ian, we know Bill Maher, one of his the ways that he has regularly stirred the pot is uh, is to go after Christians. Uh, but this is uh, he made some enormous statements about Christianity, and as it's tied uh, to what happened at the Capitol and what happened to Trumpism, uh, what happened with Trump. Uh, and so uh, I would just love kind of your reflections. What do you think about what he said? And I would love also to know, because like we said, Mark kind of stirs the pot, but do you think there's a lot of people uh, who believe what Bill Maher said there? Yeah, I don't I don't think he's alone at the very least. I actually just saw, just before we started, so it was Karen Swallow Pryor, 
posted an article from Business Insider, and the headline reads, Jenna Ryan, a Texas real estate agent charged in the Capitol insurrection, says she bought into a lie and regrets everything. Let me just read a little bit about what she wrote. Yeah. She said, I bought into a lie, and the lie is the lie, and it's embarrassing. I regret everything. I'm a complete villain. I was down there based on what my president said. Stop the steal. Now I see that it was all over nothing. He was just having us down there for an ego boost. I was there for him. It's a very, I mean, go and read the whole article. It's mm-hmm. haunting. Uh, I imagine that there's, like, she's probably going to receive a whole lot of pushback even for even for that much, you know, not to mention the entire article. So I, I do, I really wonder if someone like Mar, I'd be curious to know what he thinks he accomplishes, but I also know that there's a lot of what he's saying here that a lot of people feel this way. That's This is what's so difficult about, you know, Western Christianity in general is that, you know, mm-hmm. it can often be lumped into one massive melting pot, right? Like remember when Westboro right. Baptist Church was like gaining a lot of, a lot of press, and yep, yep. friends of mine, even who, you know, were not interested in uh, Christianity or faith or religion, knew I was a pastor. And they're like, hey, is that your team? Are, those, are you with those guys? Like, yeah, I could see why you would think that. I'm a little hurt. You know, you're someone who knows me if you, you know, <laughs> yeah. think that I would have anything to do with them. But I think a lot of people, and Mar probably included, is um, is connecting certain dots that I, in some ways, can't blame him for connecting. It's still, re- I mean, it's deeply troubling and really heartbreaking. Yeah. And so with the couple of minutes we have left, uh, what, you and I have said this often, that 99% of the Christians that we know, hopefully ourselves included, don't fall under this category in our opinions, the same way the vast majority of Muslims we know don't fall into the uh, caricatures that came out after 9-11 or other times. Uh, so what's our, what do we do? Like, Like, what do we, you and I lead churches, but we're also in the community, what do we do to kind of combat this? What is, how do we help not maybe Bill Maher, but other people who believe this, how do we help change the narrative here of what is increasingly growing steam as to what evangelical Christians are? I think honestly, and this might be controversial, but you know, I'm nearing the end. I think if if your goal, if your goal is to change a narrative, you're probably already missing the mark. If we're going into these types of interactions with the motive of a of a PR correction or to convince someone of something different, you know, if they've held on to some perception of Christianity, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go and show you otherwise, uh, I think we've already kind of missed the mark. I think I think that the way of Jesus is less concerned with trying to explain away or defend mm-hmm. or to I think it's I think it's much more. And Jesus is is regularly throughout all the gospels saying, "I know you've heard this." I tell you the truth, right? He says the mm. kingdom of God is actually much more like this. So, so doctrine matters. Theology matters deeply, but there are also moments though, where he, he seems much more intent on, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to keep on loving. You. I'm going to keep living this third way kingdom of God type of type of life and not get sucked into the narrative, counter narrative uh, binary option that so many of us have, have been really suckered and burned by and I think that's tough to do because I, I, yeah, I get the impulse. I get the instinct to want to like mm-hmm. stand mm-hmm. up for ourselves. I need to go on a campaign and make sure everyone knows like not, this isn't us. We're different. We're different kinds of Christians. Um, but I think, I think if that's our main goal, our main aim, we've it's, it's hard to really love your neighbor with that being your main objective. 
That's a good word. How can you be leaving the show when you're making good words like that? <laughs> uh, go ahead and read this at our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, we're going to be joined for two segments by Tara Beth Leach, pastor, speaker and author of the book Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Tara Beth Leach is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And uh, we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by pastor, speaker, and author of the book Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Uh, that is Tara Beth Leach. Tara Beth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's It's fun to be here. I'm glad. Oh, we're, we're appreciative. It's absolutely our pleasure. Before we jump into talking about the book and other things, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like? Yeah. So my name is Tara Beth, as, as we've already established that, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Uh, I live in Downers Grove, Illinois. I uh, just came from Pasadena. I was a senior pastor out there at a church called First Church of the Nazarene, or affectionately known as Paznaz. I was there for um, under five years hmm. and came back to Chicagoland to care for my folks. My dad is fighting cancer and wow. we've got hmm. some other family things going on. And so now I'm on staff at Christ Church in Oak Brook. Mm-hmm. Been married to the love of my life, Jeff, for 15 years. He is a true rocket scientist. When we were in California, he worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and now he does other cool aerospace stuff out here. And we have two boys, Caleb and Noah. Wow. Nine right, so and you, ten years old. That's incredible. Now, you have a new book coming out called Radiant Church, and I, I'm trying to think of a subtitle more timely than this, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. I, I don't know if you could have known how timely this book would be given the last year that we've had, but I'd love, I'd love for you to kind of start us off with a 30,000-foot perspective. Why, why did you write this book, and what's sort of your hope for this book? Yeah, so this book began with an overwhelming burden, a heavy burden for the church in North America. So I, you know, for me, first and foremost, I'm a pastor um, who happens to write. Mm. And so, you know, I'm a pastor. I I love the church. I care about the church. Um, You know, I want to give my life to this work uh, because I believe in it. And so I was pastoring out on the West Coast in Pasadena, And I got there before the 2016 election. And, you know, that fall, I did a preaching series called The Politics of Jesus, um, where I wanted to paint a very pastoral kingdom vision of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God in this this political world, in this political environment that we're living in. And uh, it was a topic to me that should not be controversial as Christians. Um, And it was. And then navigating the 2016 election as a pastor, and any pastor who's listening right now can attest, it's hard. It was hard. Um, Mm -hmm. It was hard work. It was painful. It was painful pastoring people um, through this on both sides um, for different reasons. And um, and at the same time, you know, I I'm originally from Chicago land, so at the same time while I'm in California, I'm watching Chicago churches just. blow up over the Willow Creek stuff and then the mm-hmm. Harvest Bible Chapel stuff. Right. Um, and it just was one moral failure after the next. 
And it just, I felt like I was standing there in this rubble of um, what was happening in evangelicalism. I'm just saying, what is happening? What is going on? Something's not right. Like this doesn't just happen overnight. And so in uh, 2018, I sat down and um, didn't intend to write a book. I sat in a coffee shop um, in Mammoth, California, uh, and just started to write. And I actually ended up sitting in that coffee shop for eight hours and wrote mm, wow. 8,000 words in a day. Wow. And wow. it was a, it was words of lament. Um, mm. I wept while I wrote. Um, it was words of hope and prayer and longing, almost kind of starting out like a manifesto of just like, we can do better. We, right. we can do better than this. We, but we have to do some really hard stuff first. We've, we've got to mm. lament. We have to repent. We have to confess. And so, um, so I kept writing and eventually, you know, reached out to some editors. They said, okay, is this, is this anything? Um, and so that's how it came about. It's, it is a book of lament. It's a book of longing. Um, it's a book of longing to see the bride of Christ free herself. And in particular, when I say the bride of Christ, this book is written within the context of, of what I was born into, and that is white evangelicalism. And so that is who I'm speaking to. Hmm. Um, and so um, it's it's a love letter. It's a letter of lament and hope. Well, that's great. Tara Beth, I wonder, uh, as we speak about kind of painting a picture of restoring the credibility of our witness, what do you think? Uh, uh, what do you think our witness is right now? What do you think our reputation as the church is right now to the rest of our culture, to nonbelievers, to people as they look upon the church? Yeah. So any of us who has friends or families, uh, members that are non-Christian, um, may be able to relate to the reality that there is an animosity. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've observed of what the church has done about this animosity is we have fantasized about this idea of persecution um, and this animosity that we see, we're twisting it and we're calling it persecution instead of pointing the finger back at ourselves and saying, mm-hmm. you know what? Maybe this animosity that we're experience isn't experiencing isn't persecution, and maybe maybe you know culture wars isn't the right approach. But instead, what if we point the finger back at ourselves and say maybe it has to do with the credibility of our witness? Yeah, maybe it's what those in the world are seeing, and they're looking in and they're saying, "My goodness." Is that what your God is like? Is that what your Jesus is like? Because if so, I'm not interested because when they look in, when they peer into this this gathered people, the bride of Christ, and I'm not talking, when I say look, and I'm not talking about Sunday mornings, Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about looking within the culture. Um, They see a lot of vitriol. They see see a lot of selling out. Hmm. Um, They see a lot of, it's it's confusing. I think for a lot of, of those who aren't professing Christians, because I don't think they're seeing a lot of love. Um, and, and that's not just something I suspect. I, I have a lot of non-Christian friends um, right. and their animosity is because they've either, either been hurt or betrayed, or they've seen things that just feel so hypocritical and so far from who they want or who they believe Jesus is. Hmm. I think one of the things that I, I probably caught the most heat for is I said something like, I think we need to discern the difference between persecution and consequences. Like there tends to be this like 
this tendency to point out there and it's the culture and they're the, you know, that's, that's where the problem is. And your, your book seems to do lovingly kind of the opposite. What, what's maybe just one or two things that you would challenge someone listening right now who's maybe more inclined to point a finger like out there, there's the problem to, to take a look inward. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's easy to point the finger outward. Um, but we cannot place the same sort of uh, judgment on the world. Um, I think ultimately it comes down to um, looking inward at ourselves. You know, there's so many different false narratives and false storylines that we, the church, have rooted ourselves in. Um, and, and I talk about a number of these in the book. I mean, some of them are the ways that the church in North America, um, and again, white, white evangelicalism, and the ways that we have bowed down to the altar of success. Um, we have chosen success over faithfulness. Um, we've chosen uh, rubbing shoulders with power over truth um, and faithfulness. Um, another another thing that is profoundly concerning to me as a pastor and I think this is where just a lot of this vitriol is coming is um, this belief that I'm observing that um, even if they won't, if they, even if they don't say it like this, um, they are living as though they believe this to be true. And that is a belief that the kingdom of God is going to be enacted through partisan politics mm. or that the kingdom of God is, is going to be legislated or the kingdom of God is going to be enacted through a particular president um, and we've, we have a confused kingdom theology and how the kingdom of God is enacted. Mm. And as a result, um, the, I see so many Christians um, choosing and selling out. Um, it, so it's, it's either they're selling out intentionally or they just really believe that the kingdom of God is going to be enacted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so it's, it's, which is it? Um, and, and that's what is so con- concerning to me. And also, I mean, there's so many things, you know, we could talk about individualism, we could talk about our false images of God, but there's right. just a lot that we've got to deal with, with it, within our own, our own house. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. What a timely book, Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. That author is Tara Beth Leach. And Tara Beth, uh, I want to just ask you about the title because obviously words are chosen very much on purpose. So what, talk to us about the word radiant. Why did you choose the word radiant? What are you, what are you trying to convey with that word? Yeah. So first of all, um, Jesus is the radiant one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is in the radiant of God's glory and we are the radiant um, one's bride we, Jesus calls us the light of the world. And from the very beginning of the story of God, when God begins to make a covenant with the people, we see this call for these people to be a peculiar people, to be a living alternative, to be a holy people, a holy nation, uh, to be a light to the nations, that the people of God would live in such a way uh, that the world would actually take notice at the radiance and the beauty. And this call now is the people of God in Christ, where these floodgates have been open. And now at this gathered table, what that is called the people of God is Jew, Greek, Gentile, male, female, and on. We are gathered and we have this, again, this unique call to stand out in such a way that we reflect the radiance of God, that mm-hmm. the world would, would take notice and be able to see the bride and say, whoa, 
is that what your God is like? Because if so, then I want to get to know God. I want to get to know Jesus because it is radiant and beautiful that we Mm. would literally be living in such a way that the world would see the radiance of God. Mm. Wow. I love that. It's, it's pretty obvious when you go through some of the reviews of your book, one, that people deeply love you. Like there's, there's numerous references to you yourself just being a radiant person. And the other thing that I, I really see over and over again is how much you love the church. And, you know, Brian and I have done a number of articles where there, there still seems to be a very common trend where they're like, Hey, I'm into Jesus. I just hate the church. And, you know, that's a pretty loaded statement, but it's also something that, you know, as Brian and I as pastors, and I'm sure as a pastor yourself, you've experienced this. How do you help shepherd someone who legitimately feels that way? They're like, I think I'm, I'm into Jesus and the Trinity and the resurrection. I just really can't stand the church and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, that is one of the big reasons I wrote this book. So I wrote this book for two audiences. Um, I wrote it for number one, those of us who are participants in the systems in this world um, that have caused a lot of harm. Um, you know, systems of racism and sexism and all the isms, you know, we can think of. Um, but then I also wrote it for those that are saying exactly that. I, I'm interested in Jesus. I just can't do the church. And I want to say, you have good reason to say that. You're not wrong. What you've seen is painful, and I don't want to minimize that. And then I also want to say, okay, so let's look to Jesus. And yes, like I love Jesus, and I've wanted to walk away, but I also believe Jesus, Mm. meaning I believe the words of Jesus. And guess what? When I read the words of Jesus, Jesus talks about us a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Jesus laid down his life with this vision of what? The church uh, Jesus um, prayed for us in the garden, um, not so that we would walk away and give up, but so that we would press into this harder, um, that we would be peacemakers. Uh, Jesus, I believe Jesus, when he cast this vision in the Sermon on the Mount, of this Sermon on the Mount community that is to be in stark contrast and living alternative, I don't think Jesus cast that vision and said, oh, by the way, um, when we when we reach the year, you know, 2018, 2019, 2016, um, it's just going to all come apart. And so, like, let's just do away with this idea because it's, it's not going to work. I, Jesus, Jesus believed in it and still believes mm. in it and still calls us to lean into that. Mm. And so we as a church have this incredible call to partner with this work that that Jesus talked about. Um, and, and to partner with Jesus in the work in this work that that Jesus um, just through the the gift of the Trinity is doing in this world now, hmm. and so we can we can give up we can walk away, but for me it's pretty hard to reconcile. Okay, if I love Jesus, then my call is also to love the church and to lean into this vision. And Tara Beth, uh, wondering what is it? What would it look like for you to go? You know what? Uh, it's a decade from now, a year from now, whatever. Uh, these are the markers that restoration of cre- credibility is occurring. What? What? So we've turned the corner. What are some markers that you think that would go? Yeah, we're getting this. The church's credibility is is on the rise right now. Yeah. So I think that there's going to have to be a lot of dismantling that needs to be done. Um, and so, and, and this is, again, this is that, that first group that I talked about of those of us who are participating in, in systems that are harmful in this world. And so we've got to dismantle and deconstruct things mm-hmm. um, and not end there. Again, this is this for me, it's not about deconstruct, dismantling, deconstruct, dismantling. 
but it's also rebuilding, um, leaning into something new and reconstructing, mm-hmm. right? And so the things that we want to see dismantled are um, toxic patriarchy and, and sexism. We want to see dismantled, um, you know, uh, Christian nationalism. Uh, we want to see dismantled um, um, racism and, and not just that I'm a racist, um, but that meaning like the systemic racism that exists in this world. Um, and so I believe that some of the markers of that happening is is Christians and churches no longer turning a blind eye to it, mm-hmm. but instead saying, yeah, you know what? We need to talk about this. Like, yes, this has been uncomfortable, um, but we can't remain in hiding anymore. Uh, and so we want to lean in. We want to listen. We want to listen to how we've harmed others. Um, and we want to, um, not just dismantle for dismantle sake, which is one of the concerns I have as a pastor that there's just so much dismantling and deconstructing, but then let's press into the words of Jesus and let's see something fresh and new and exhilarated and wonderful and beautiful. I love that. I I was just, as you were answering that question, I had this thought that there's a difference between deconstruction and demolition, right? And your hope isn't to demolish just to level. It's like, no, no, let's unpack the parts that are, are toxic, maybe the parts that we've not been aware of. And what would you say to the person maybe who they're listening to what you're saying? They're thinking, I don't, I don't think any of that is a problem. I don't see any, I don't see any of those issues in the church. And therefore we seem to be going on the right trajectory to the, to the person that feels like, Nope, the, the church seems like it's in pretty good shape right now. And we're looking like Jesus and we're heading in the direction that we're supposed to, uh, what, yeah, what, what hope or challenge maybe would you, would you offer to that person? Yeah, well, hopefully they're still listening because hmm. you might have a few viewers that have already turned the radio off and are angry <laughs> right now. Um, and, and that's okay. Like, I can handle yeah. that. I'm a pastor. Like, I'm here for it to walk with people through some of this really hard stuff. Hmm. Um, so those who've hung on and are, are not mad at me yet um, and are still questioning, um, I would say, let's do some deep listening. Um, and, and what I mean is, is you know, I, I have a lot of friends, for example, that say, well, I, I listen to this person of color. Um, I want to say, like, let's listen to a variety of people's experiences yes. um, across the political spectrum and not even just like people who are so so-called experts. But can we can we practice listening um, in chapter eight of this book? I talk about practices that will get us through turbulent times, um, listening and eating together and the practice of examination. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to honestly come before God without these just preconceived um, ideas of where we think we are and say, OK, God, where am I really? And go through this process of examination. And we do. I mean, this is hard work. Um, I think it's it's taking a posture of humility and saying, you know, I might have some more to learn. Um, I want to listen. I want to ask hmm. questions instead of being the one that's you know knows all things. I want to listen. I want to ask questions. Um, I want to break bread with others. I want to get to know people in other neighborhoods, and I want to hear their stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tara Beth, we're so grateful for your book and the time you've spent with us. Before we let you go, I do know that there is a special event for your book launch coming up on February 16th. Could you tell our listeners about that special event? Yeah, I'm so excited on. Tuesday, February 16th at 7 p.m. We're having an hour and a half event uh, where we are bringing in a number of just 
wonderful speakers um, and theologians and pastors. And we're going to together talk about the credibility of our witness. So we're going to have Ashley Island. She's over at Mars Hill. We're going to have Greg Boyd, Tiffany Blum, Mike Frost, Cheryl Bridges, John, um, Helen Lee, Sharon Heidi Miller, Glenn Packiam, Sean Palmer, and Christine Kane. Um, We have tons of good. We're giving away like 30 books. Northern Seminary is giving away a class. They're giving away subscription to a seminary now. Um, and then we also have a worship leader wrote a song to go with the book called Radiant, and it's going to be debuted that night. And if you registered to the event, you'll get a free download of the song at the end of the night. So wow. it is going to be a blast. I'm so excited. So that's February 16th, 7 to 8.30. And if they want to learn more, they can find me on social media or um, at my website, tarabethleach.com. That's right. You can go to TaraBethLeach.com. We'll also put that up at our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, That sounds like a fabulous event. So we hope that goes well for you on February 16th. Uh, Again, Tara Beth Leach, author of the new book, Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Tara Beth, thank you so much. This was great. We really appreciate it. Thanks thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Hope that you are having a good Wednesday. And uh, every day when we end the show, uh, especially in this time of the pandemic, what we've tried to do is to give you some good news, give you some inspiration, give you something to think about as you then go about the rest of your evening. And sometimes it's just, uh, how can I be healthy? in the midst of the pandemic, mentally, physically. Sometimes it's this good word from scripture. Sometimes it's from our friends at the Good News Network and just stories to put a smile on your face. And so with that in mind, uh, here's how we're going to end today with this article uh, from uh, from TED.com. Why your brain loves it when you exercise, plus three easy ways to work out at home. So a lot of us uh, going, yeah, I know it's good to work out, but this is going to help us understand why. Uh, but then also going, hey, I'm locked in my house because it's freezing outside and and I'm not really comfortable going back to the gym or whatever else. Uh, and it says, here's some easy ways to work out at home. So uh, in our brain science guy, that's you, uh, when it says, why don't you get us into it, especially as it talks to us as to why our brain loves it when we exercise. Yeah, you can tell that this is potentially written from some perspective, not in the Midwest, because the recommendations are like, hey, just a walk around the block or a 10 minute online workout. <laughs> like I would yes. really emphasize the 10 minute online workout over the walk around the block right now. But then again, <laughs> some of my my more committed running friends were posting photos just this morning. And I thought, man, no, you are way more committed to this than than I am. Uh, there's a couple of things going on here. Exercising to increase your fitness literally builds brand new brain cells. It changes your brain's anatomy, physiology, and function. This particular scientist explains every time you work out, you're giving your brain a neurochemical bubble bath. And these regular bubble baths can also help protect your brain in the long term from conditions like Alzheimer's and dementia. This sounds mm. great, but it's hard to turn those long term benefits into motivation to get up and do something every day, which is a whole other topic, a whole other segment that how do we actually convince people that these long term benefits are actually worth making adjustments and tweaks right now? Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people in their 70s or 80s or 90s say, I wish I had paid attention in my 20s, 30s, 40s to the things that people were saying I should be doing. But for whatever mm-hmm. reason, we just we ignore it or we don't prioritize it right. or we go in short bursts. You know, we talked about I think the stat was something like 
92% of people will bail on their New Year's resolutions by February 1. I thought that's an that's an insane percentage, even if even if it's being a little overreaching. And I think this type of article will inspire some people and for a whole lot more, it'll say it'll it'll make someone nod their head in agreement and then change nothing. And I think part of what's so, so convicting for me, especially given the year that we've had, where I think people are probably much more attuned to their own anxiety mm-hmm. and stress and maybe even depression that they're, they're maybe more open to a 10 minute workout than they ever have been. They may be more open to things like silence and breathing and meditation and Lectio Divina. And those, I think people are potentially more receptive now to some of those things than ever before, because they're like all the lights on their dashboard are going off. Like we're not yeah. doing great yeah. right now. We're, we, we need to find something other, something different to do other than what we're, we're currently doing. And I think that, you know, I hope, hope people, I hope people lean into that a little bit. Yeah. And the age old question here, they try to answer, how much do you need to exercise in order to feel those benefits? Like, do I need to put in a two hour workout or is 10 jumping jacks going to do it? And it says, Dr. Suzuki says, that's the billion dollar question. Unfortunately, there's no simple answer. Five pushups or 10 burpees don't automatically release a set amount of dopamine. In her 2017 TED Talk, she recommends trying to fit in a 30 minute uh, workout session of exercise three to four times a week. But the real answer, especially now, is to exercise for as long as you can, ideally doing it a little bit every day. Even a walk, as you said, can start to give you those neurotransmitter and mood benefits. Uh, Many of the positive effects she mentions come from doing cardiovascular exercise. That is any workout that gets your heart rate up. But even this can be more accessible than it feels, a vigorous session of power vacuuming. Let's just think about that one for a second. A vigorous session of power vacuuming will get your heart pumping, even if you can't go for a run. If you're building a stairs, take them instead of the elevator. And so the point is, just start doing something uh, and and just start moving and going. And it uh, goes on to say that it, there's no best time to do it. Uh, and, uh, and, and now there's this whole kind of cottage industry of online fitness things and apps you can be doing. Ian, I'd say the point is, and, and I've joked on this show about like how I will kind of find excuses not to work out. Like, oh, I don't know, it's cold outside or I can't afford a gym membership or, you know, whatever else it might be. Uh, but this article's point is, listen, even when you're vacuuming, you could do it in such a way that gives you a workout. Uh, it's just kind of about having this mindset that exercise is not just good for me physically, but it's also good for me mentally, and it's good for my long-term health down the road. Yeah, I think the one thing that baffles me is who's vacuuming without power? Like, how do you <laughs> power vacuuming? I was like, is that a they have like a like a manual lawnmower? They have just a like a like a rotating <laughs> cylinder attached to a broomstick handle? No, I, I think. I think my my brother, who is a, uh, a he's a brilliant chiropractor in Michigan, Foundation Chiropractic, by the way. If you're uh, in southeastern Michigan, highly recommend him. Same as Zach Simpkins, Doctor Zachary Simpkins. But I, I'm really really grateful to have a brother who is mindful of those things and deeply educated in those things, and has the courage to tell you, like, hey man, I've been noticing your posture lately, or you know that kind of stuff. To have someone who's sort of in your ear a little bit, like, hey, this is these shifts are in the wrong direction and they're so incremental that you probably aren't noticing them, but 
but I do as someone who has, has specialized in this. I remember him sending me a video years ago and the whole kind of premise of the video was, um, could you find it in your day to only sit or lay down 23 and a half hours a day? The whole the whole kind of premise was just move for a half hour a day. That's all you have to. And it was sort of a snarky way to end it. Like we spend <laughs> our entire day sitting in a chair, sitting in a car, laying in our bed, just completely right. Dasa, just motion, yes, motionless. Yes. He's like, is, would you be willing to only do that? 23 and a half hours a day <laughs> and just commit 30 <laughs> minutes to some kind of vigorous movement of any kind. Walk up and down the stairs a couple of times and like carry, you know, jugs of milk. Like there's just so many, most of us are, are so trapped by the, well, I'll never be a bodybuilder or I'm never going to be shredded like this or, you know, and that's, I think that reveals a whole other issue in our, in our culture. Like, well, if I'm not going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, then why even bother? You're like, well, because it's good for right. your brain and your heart and your muscles and your joints and your skin and your mental health and you'll live longer. I mean, all of these things. Like, well, but I'm not, not going to be a runway model. Why even try? Okay, so yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully, somebody finds some motivation in this article, and I think I think it makes some really compelling cases. And so, if you're out there, that's kind of what we want to leave you with today. Uh, that just start doing something like, uh, again, I'm the king of excuse making when it comes to exercise. Uh, you know, oh, it's cold outside. I would normally like to walk the dog right now, but, you know, it's too cold. It's snowy uh, or I'm tired or what am I going to do in the house? And and the point of this article is understand the benefits of movement, of exercise and get creative with it. Get online and find an online community that can help. Or like they said, I love that phrase, power vacuuming. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to think about that one. But all that to say, there are things that you can be doing, even in the dead of a Chicago winter, when we all just feel cooped up and, uh, and kind of, like you said, kind of uh, stationary. And so wanted to leave you with that. Uh, it helps your brain. Uh, it helps your, your psychology and it helps your body as we exercise and would love for you uh, to read that article. You can do it at our Facebook page, the common good radio show or at common good talk. Uh, and with that, we are done for a Wednesday, uh, two more days together. And so we hope you will join us tomorrow from four until six. Have a great night for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>